millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. The government's big spending national development plan is hailed as the greenest in the history of the state. I am confident we can deliver many, many other projects here. Um, obviously, uh, the word guarantee is, it has to be qualified in terms of planning. However, the opposition has attacked the plan as political theatre. We discussed the big plan, its ambitions and targets. Anti-Social Ireland, what's behind the apparent rise in street crime and anti-social behaviour on our streets, illustrated in tonight's TV documentary? And Radio Nova presenter Luca Fuelon on his mental health journey. Get in touch on Twitter on our hashtag TonightVMTV. First tonight, a man has been jailed for life for the murder of his former partner at her home in County Wicklow almost two years ago. Nadine Lott died from the severe injuries inflicted by her ex-boyfriend Daniel Murta at her Arklow home in December of 2019. Well, I'm joined now by our courts correspondent, Deborah Naylor, who has been covering this case. And Deborah, Daniel Murta sentenced to life in prison. But today we heard the harrowing victim impact statement from Nadine Lott's mother, Claire, in which she said Daniel Murta really was the devil at work. Yeah, and I think that's always a chance at a sentence hearing. It's really the first time in many instances that you'll ever get to hear a family speak. Most of the time, the trial will actually be focused on the crime and focused on the perpetrator of that crime. But today was their opportunity to, to talk about their daughter. Claire Lott took the stand. She began by saying how her daughter was such a, a bubbly child. She said, you know, she was the light of all their lives. She was the one who was caring, a great listener. And she spoke at length about her daughter, Nadine, uh, she then went in to talk about how happy she was in 2019, but she said that that all changed in an instant when the family got a phone call in the early hours of December 14th. She went to Nadine Lott's house that night and she said that the scene that she was embraced with, her daughter was completely unrecognisable. It was a scene of, of absolute horror and she spoke about this at length in her victim impact statement. We'd heard that testimony from her during the trial and we, we got, a, I suppose, an elongated version of that today and just the absolute devastation that their, their family have had to endure for the last number of years since Nadine's death, uh, the absolute horrific circumstances of this case. And, and she said today that, um, you know, even those who attended the scene, and we saw this actually during the trial, the evidence we heard from, from a nurse who said it was, you know, Nadine's face was absolutely unrecognisable. She said it was one of the worst things she had ever endured. And other paramedics said he had never seen a scene like it but the family did have their opportunity to speak today and um, I suppose just the absolute devastation was 
was there to see. Um, they all emerged from the Central Criminal Court together as a unit after they were all wearing uh, Navy masks with Nadine uh, written across them in pink. And we did hear from a family friend and, and a lawyer who spoke on their behalf. This sentence can never bring true justice for Nadine. It can never fix what has been broken. It can never recover what has been lost. And Deborah, Daniel Murta's ultra-violent killing of Nadine Lott has been met with widespread revulsion um, from outside the courthouse too. And there's been political reaction too to this killing, hasn't there been? Yes, we did hear from the Minister for Justice today and she called this um, an act of pure evil and Heather Humphrey said that violence against women um, was a scourge in our societies and she said she was encouraging all women to come forward. She said there needed to be more help for victims and perpetrators um, needed to be treated tougher. But this is in fact um, a, the second case that we've seen in the space of a week in the Central Criminal Court because just five days ago another man, Renato Galen, was convicted of murdering his wife. Different circumstances circumstances in that case, but what I suppose is the, is the similarity in them both um, was talked about in both trials was, was an issue of jealousy. Um, in Nadine Lott's case, we heard at length at the end of the prosecution said, you know, her killing was about a man who was, who was acting on jealousy and rage and he was, um, you know, taking drink and drugs at the time. And there was a lot of similarities with Renato Galen's case. But the judge today uh, referred to Nadine's murder as brutal and he said, the testimony from the responders at the scene, he said, was was testament to that terror and that evil and brutality, as he called it. And um, it certainly hasn't been the first case of this kind that we have seen before the courts, unfortunately. OK, Deborah, thank you for that. And if you've been affected by any of the issues raised there, you can contact Helplines, which you can find on virginmediatelevision.ie forward slash helplines. Now, the government has unveiled its big spending national development plan, which maps out major developments in the years ahead and is framed against the context of the climate crisis. Well, I'm joined in studio by Fianna Fáil's Jim O'Callaghan, Sinn Féin's Louise O'Reilly, and by Fiannán Sheehan, Ireland editor of independent.ie. Uh, Fiannán, you're all very welcome along tonight. Um, Fiannán, I want to come to you first. And this national development plan has been described as unprecedented in scale. We hear a lot of uh, mention of unprecedented these days, but 165 billion euro, it's an awful lot of money. Um, take us through the to-do list here uh, under this Ireland 2040 plan. Yeah, so it, it's, it's, a re, it's a repackaging of a series of commitments that were made in, in the same plan three years ago under the Fine Gael minority government with, with, um, with Fianna Fáil in the, the confidence supply uh, arrangement. And the new plan is, is viewed as taking into consideration the perspectives of Fianna Fáil and the Green Party now in government, as well as the increased uh, emphasis on uh, our climate change commitments, housing policy, and changes that have come about in the intervening period, such as, as COVID-19. So the, the, the envelope of spending has, has increased uh, in that regard. Some alteration on the transport side, uh, in terms of the ratio of spending between roads uh, and public transport. However, none of the road commitments that were included three years ago have been removed in the intervening period, uh, which has, has raised uh, some eyebrows. But it's not just about, about transport. It's effectively about whatever the country is going to need in terms of infrastructure over the, co over mm. the course of the next decade. So that's transport. It's also housing is a, is a major uh, element. Uh, of it as well, 
hospitals and the, the health sector, you've and the schools, massive demand uh, for upgrades of, of existing uh, school buildings. Again, COVID-19 t- t- taking its, its toll there and new uh, both catchment areas and population growth uh, resulting in, in demands for, for more new schools. You obviously also have things like water and sewerage being required to be put in place in order to allow the houses to be built uh, in, in the first place. So it, it, it's an all-embracing um, uh, plan. New, newish type of elements are things uh, like such as a greater emphasis on, on cycle pa- cycleways, uh, walkways, footpaths, um, making town centres uh, more feasible for for people to get in, uh, get in and out of, to be to be living closer to the, the centre of activity in terms of of shops, uh, amenities, uh, schools, and also does a, a Northern Ireland element in it that, that, that Taoiseach has brought his his shared island uh, initiative to the table. There's a lot there. There's a lot there. The uh, but it is in effect. It's a it's a bit. I mean, the title is even the same. The logos and, and so on are the same as what was there three years ago. That the tarnished it this evening. Leo Varadkar has been complaining that it has been viewed somewhat cynically and I presume he was talking about his own Minister for Transport, Eamon Ryan, in that regard because he seems to have taken the most cynical view of all uh, of the National Development Plan uh, in that he has said that not all of the roads projects that are included in it are going to happen anyway. There are major questions arising around the the, the two-to-one ratio of public transport to roads. Are they talking about each year? So if you do uh, one roads project, you have to do two public transport projects, spend two euros here and one euro there, or is he talking about over the course uh, of the decade? So there has been friction within the coalition uh, in this regard on, on the, the, the roads expenditure. We've already seen one of the major road projects going from an M to an N, which basically means that it has been, it has been downgraded. But nonetheless, all of the kind of the pork barrel politics commitments that, that were in there for every corner of the country are still there. Okay, well, one of the big criticisms is this sort of lack of detail around the plans, that it is really ambitious. There's an awful lot of money being spent and it seems to cover everything across the range from transport to healthcare uh, and everything in between. But in terms of of, of giving details and, and end dates and when projects will be completed, there isn't a lot of that in this. Well, I think, it's, I think it's a very detailed plan, Claire. I think it's very ambitious and I think it's very realistic. And where there is an absence of dates, I think that's because there is uncertainty as to whether or not the project can be delivered by a certain date. And, and why, the, why is that? Because if you look at something like Metrolink, and I think when you look back at the plan that was published in 2018, and the big criticism is that there isn't an end date to Metrolink, but the important thing in the plan is that the government has committed to funding and delivery of Metrolink. The reason there isn't a specific end date in it is because the government can't assert with certainty when it will end. But there's no doubt about the commitment to it and it is going but to happen. Like that's still the question. Why, like, why couldn't it have been done by 2027? Why has it been pushed well, back? The co- there was sorry, this date of 2034. The government could have taken a casual approach and said, yeah, let's put in 2027. It was in the previous plan. They did the correct thing. It did the honest thing. And it stated, we can't state with certainty. But we do know that next year there's going to be an application for a railway order made. And the important thing is that there's commitment to Metrolink. But can I say as well, this is 180 page document. It tells the public how its money is going to be spent on capital projects over the next 10 years. It's extremely important that that information is provided
provided. And it's not just all about transport, although that's 35 billion over a decade. It's not just all about housing, although there's a huge emphasis on that. We're talking about 4 billion a year over each of the years for the next 10 years. But there's huge issues elsewhere dealt with as well. And I think it is important that the government does set out on a plan how it intends to spell the, spend the public's money. Because if it doesn't, you just have a situation where ministers come along on a haphazard basis and try to get agreement from government for their individual pet projects. So national development plans have worked in the past. I remember Fianna Fáil in the past put things like port tunnels, Lewis, yeah. upgrade of roads into national development plans. People said, will this ever happen? They did happen. So I have confidence that these will happen as well. Okay, Jim has every confidence that what's laid out in this plan will happen. Um, what does Sinn Féin think of the plan? Because it is important to have ambition when it comes to um, national development and, and projects around it. Indeed, uh, it's important to have ambitions and, and, and Jim mentions previous commitments given by Fianna Fáil indeed, in, including a commitment to deliver Metro North, which is now Metro Link, uh, which had a date. So let's, let's speak like three years ago, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, though not technically fully in government together, but in their weak confidence and supply arrangements that so they were governing together agreed a 10-year plan. Three years later, we have another 10-year plan. If we're going to have a 10-year plan every three years, we're not going to actually get anything done, bar a whole load of announcements, a lot of printed brochures, um, um, maybe a, um, an undesirable amount of guff, let's say, uh, but no actual delivery. So if you're living in Swords, and I was there this evening, I was, I was at a meeting with, uh, with some residents and we talked about uh, Metro North and Metro Link, um, you know, it's not simply the case that, uh, that this is a standalone project. So there are thousands of homes that have been built in Swords off the back of this project being delivered. And there are thousand more, thousands of more homes planned to be built in Swords, literally based on the delivery. So what we don't have is a recalibration of all of these plans. We simply have, these plans are going to go ahead. These houses uh, have been built. People bought houses, let me think about this. People bought houses 10 years ago in Swords and in the brochures for those houses was a picture of the metro that they were told they, would go, they were going to be able to get. And now what they have is the option to take private buses into town, Dublin buses into town, and again, you're feeding in the traffic, or they can sit in their car on the M1, which is like a car park. So yes, this is big on, on glossy brochures, but in terms of actual delivery, removing the date from a date to aim for, removing that date, uh, which is what has been done with this in terms of the Dart Plus and uh, Metrolink. All that does is this stretches it out. It makes people believe that this will never be yeah. delivered. Is there is there an honesty to that though? Uh, as as you know, that as was said today, that being realistic, that you know we don't have that date in mind yet. We want you know to get the price tag right. We want it to be competitive. That's why we're not putting a price on these projects because that's going to you know, keep it competitive and get the best price possible for government. Is there an argument to be made that yeah, it's important to do that. <laughs> to keep it competitive and get the best price for government. I mean, I'm laughing and, you know, it, it, some of this is not funny. This, this is millions and billions of, of, of euros. But the National Children's Hospital is in this project. So, you know, I mean, like, let, let's be realistic. Uh, if there's no date, there's no date to aim for. So what they have said is we have a vague commitment to deliver the metro to Swords, but we don't know when it's going to happen. And so if, if there's not a date 
driving this. And this, this project has already yeah. been allowed to slip for, I mean, it, it's 20 I mean, years it's not, now it's in, not, in and the planning. First, it's not just, I mean, there's a, there's a series of other projects and roads, roads of which were announced in 2018 um, 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 that we have no decisions on now and that are si still subject to further approvals here. Like, why, why is that the case? It's just the big question is, why do you announce this plan when there is not much in terms of real concrete because, action and because decisions... Today. It's not a vague commitment, as Louise has said. It's a commitment, and the government have stated that in the plan, page 87, I think it is, it says the government is committed to the delivery and funding but of Metrolink. We can't give certainty as to when that is, and I can understand how frustrating that is for people living in North Dublin who need a rail network. But also, if you look at the project or the and plan, is that because of uh, because like of uncertainty, because of uncertainty, uncertainty what, because what it's not going to be next year until a rail order is applied for. We're not going to be able to figure out to what extent there's going to be uh, judicial reviews in respect of it. It's going to take time to. If you look at the length of time it took for the port tunnel, and that was done quite fast, it's going to take time to build a tunnel from the centre of the city yeah. out to Dublin Airport and beyond. These people who are wondering and, look, and maybe have, have bought those new houses are like, but they're like, going we, to get, we bought those houses and, and the absolutely. plans were there and the brochures were there and the photos and were I'm there And I'm frustrated the and I know that Fianna Fáil TDs are frustrated that we can't give them a specific date. But what I can give them and what Fianna Fáil can give them is a guarantee that it will happen. There's a commitment there to Metrolink. And in terms of the roads projects, can I just say, like the, the, the plan on page 64 sets out 31 roads projects. They're in the plan because they're part of a commitment of the government to see these roads okay. developed. They're in the plan. There's 31 road projects in the plan. Um, you know, we're getting page numbers of, of an 180 page plus um, document there. So there is a lot there. But what, what's, I mean, what's the risk here for government that there's a lot of announcements, but there is no you know, end dates because of uncertainty that we're hearing. Uh, what's, what's the problem with that? Is it, is it not dangerous to be announcing such a big spend when there's no certainty around a lot of it? Well, your danger, I suppose, is you're, you're, you're going back on commitments that you made three years ago and subsequently in a, in a general election from, from the, the two larger parties' perspective in, in, the, in the coalition. There's, a, there's an inherent danger of having to go back to people and say, well, actually, those 20 road projects are going ahead, these 11 here uh, are not. Last week, we had, quite quietly, actually, the announcement of a, a review of, of the planning laws. And you'd kind of look at this report today and say, well, how much of that is contingent upon the fact that we have got a planning system that can hold things up for years indefinitely or get things cancelled or not happening uh, at all um, versus this plan being launched today so with, with great fanfare. planning laws overhaul some of these projects and fast track them in essence? Well, if the, if the planning review comes back and says we need to overhaul our planning laws, we may even need to have a constitutional uh, referendum, then, then so be it. But that, that'll obviously take quite some time. In the meanwhile, uh, Metrolink will, 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 be, will be held yeah. up. They're left the high M20 and dry, from disappointed Cor yet again. Will, be, will be held up. I mean, there's, there's other issues you, you, could, you could look at today. Did, did this, did this uh, plan really take into account the transformation that has happened in the country in terms of, of working from home and people wanting to get out uh, of, of the rat race, being involved in, in stocking cars, 
uh, trains and buses for hours uh, on end funneling into to, to Dublin city centre all of the time. Not really. As you go through the report, there's kind of mention of it, but there's no overarching vision, did you yeah. say? You're really taking account of that. The, the cost overruns issue, uh, very definitely there. And yet again, we have another Minister for Public Expenditure telling us, oh yeah, we'll definitely deal with it, with it this I, time. I want to get Jamie in on that. Like we, we are looking at a new landscape and, 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 and this move away from the city. Many people can't afford, mm-hmm. of course, to live yeah. in our cities and they're mo- moving to rural areas. Um, uh, you know, are there plans within that, looking at this new landscape that people are living in and, and a change maybe in that people want that, that will serve the country better? Yeah, I think there are. And I think the roads upgrades are part of that. But like the roads upgrades, for example, now this, this road between Limerick and Cork, mm. the M20 yeah. was being... You know, planned as perhaps is now maybe the N20. Well, we still don't know about that, and that's been fast-forwarded now to 2022, isn't it? But we're still not sure what's going to happen there. I think it was always referred to as the N20 or the M20, but what is absolutely certain is that we need a much better road between Cork and Limerick. What we want to do is, you look at the country, it's completely imbalanced. There are too many people living in Dublin, too much concentration on Dublin. We need to spread that out around the country to the regions such as Cork and Limerick. And an essential ingredient of that is ensuring that there's proper transport infrastructure between the two. And that's why we do need that M20 road. Yeah. Uh, uh, What about the Greens agenda here? Because if there is that uh, public transport two to one spend, that means those road projects that that are under discussion, subject to approval, may or may not come to pass if the focus and a lot of the funding is going to be on on public transport. Listen, the Greens have done extremely well in the programme for government and they've translated this into the National Development Plan. There's a commitment in respect of transport, two to one public transport over roads. So that's a recognition and commitment that they have. But they also recognise that there has to be investment in roads. And that's why these provisions are in this plan. Ryan's not so sure. Well, it's in the plan. Like, obviously, people have to appeal to their own constituencies and occasions like this when plans are being announced. But there's a commitment there. And all government parties have signed up to this plan, which contains 31 road projects. Um, Louise, what would Sinn Féin do differently? Well, I think we need to put dates and times and deliverables in it. And I think a plan without those is absolutely nonsensical. I mean, the the commitment that that, that Jim refers to and the, the so-called green agenda and the influence that the Greens are, are allegedly having. And remember the old one green, vote green, sure, sure, one green, vote, vote green as well. But um, I mean... I don't see it. I don't see that they're serious, uh, to be honest with you, because a major infrastructure project such as DART Plus, even the separate, separate to Metro North, but, but bringing the DART out as far as Drogheda, something which in, uh, in the previous Dáil, Fianna Fáil, uh, had a PMB, with, had a motion on and, and, and a big discussion about it. And, and a lot of, yes, we're committed to this. But actually, if you don't put a date beside that, and bearing in mind, it's nearly 20 years since they raised the bridges out my way to let the DART go up as far as Drogheda. If you don't have dates and you don't have deliverables, well, then there isn't anything to, to aim for. And it does make people very, very... Very, the, t- people are cynical about this now, but they're also really pessimistic. And I think, you know, okay. what we need to have, we need to see definitive dates and commitments from the government, I not suppose you can TBC. have dates and you can have commitments and then it's whether or not they actually come to pass. Um, well, that takes briefly, political will. Yeah, um, just on this, Ben, just in the context of the budget, um, how, how is it all looking in terms of the way the government is going to present this budget. There is a sense there that there's going to be, you know, a a few giveaways that's going to be quite generous in part. And is this the way 
we should be looking in, in a you know, post-pandemic place? Should there be an element of prudence going into it? Well, you, you were seeing today that, that direct contradiction uh, between the commitments on the road projects on, on one side versus the, the, the two-to-one spend and the commitments on climate change on the other. And I think that's going to be carried through uh, into the budget in terms of th there, there is a clear friction there now between the two establishment civil war parties and, and the Green Party. And the Green Party today, doing their own kind of minority report, didn't exactly, you know, instill um, confidence here in this report. They're going off into the, the shaky bridge there above in the Merdike in Cork, like where the, the ball is usually put in, into touch uh, for, by rugby players like Jim coming down from, from Dublin. And uh, it, 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 was, it wasn't terribly, it, it, you just okay. didn't get a sense today there was a unity of purpose right. about this government on this plan. Okay. And I think that's going to translate into the carbon budget as we see following on from this budget. Okay, well, look, we'll have to leave it there. Um, and coming up next after the break, Anti-Social Ireland will have reaction to tonight's TV documentary. Stay with us. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome back now. Some breaking news just reaching us tonight and a man in his 40s has died after an incident at a house in Blanchardstown in Dublin earlier today. A second man in his 20s and a woman in her 20s have both been taken to the Matter Hospital with injuries. Well, our news correspondent, Zara King, joins me now from the scene with the latest. Zara, what can you tell us? Yes, good evening, Claire. Well, the house remains sealed off here in Ashfield Park in Blanchardstown this evening following that incident, which uh, took place at around four o'clock this afternoon. Uh, as you mentioned there, a man in his 40s uh, suffering serious injuries at the property here. He was taken to uh, Connolly Hospital in Blanchardstown, Claire, where he was pronounced dead this evening. Now, uh, two other people, a man in his 20s and a woman aged in her 20s, uh, both of them have been taken to the Matter Hospital tonight. Uh, their injuries are being described as serious, Claire. They are said to be in a serious um, condition. Now, uh, the family at the centre of this case are understood to be originally uh, from Eastern Europe. Investigating officers very much treating this case for the moment as a domestic incident, uh, telling us that they're not looking for anyone else uh, in connection with this investigation. They are, however, uh, looking for witnesses, clear anyone with information to come forward. So uh, they're particularly keen to speak to anyone who might have been in the Ashfield Park area this afternoon, sometime between midday and four o'clock this afternoon, particularly anyone who might have uh, dash cam footage. So, for example, taxi drivers who might have been dropping and collecting in 
in this area, if they can jog their memory and perhaps if they noticed anything unusual uh, in this particular area, they're asking them to come forward to investigators at Blanchardstown Garda Station um, or to contact the Garda Confidential Line. So I suppose in terms of what happens next, Claire, well, a post-mortem will be carried out uh, on the body of the man in his 40s tomorrow. Uh, the results of that post-mortem will determine uh, the course of the investigation, but tonight the scene remains preserved, uh, awaiting a full examination by the Garda Technical Team. Okay, Sarah, thank you for bringing us up to date on that story tonight from Blanchardstown. Well, earlier tonight, Virgin Media Television broadcast a hard-hitting documentary by crime correspondent Sarah O'Connor on street crime and antisocial behaviour. Here's a little bit of what we saw described in the programme. Anjali Sharma and her friend were viciously attacked as they walked out of St. Stephen's Green on a summer's evening. Well, they came to us and he, they started punching my friend first on his mouth and everywhere. So he was bleeding already and I was just trying to save him. And just to see that, I looked behind and somebody threw a can of drink, a Copperberg or something, on my right eye. They just immediately left the scene and ran from there. Well, I'm joined now by our panel, criminologist Trina O'Connor and Jim O'Callaghan and Louise O'Reilly are also still here with me. And Trina, I want to come to you first. Um, we're hearing a lot, not just anecdotally, but, but seeing a rise in crime, um, street crime, antisocial behaviour and, and, and seemingly random attacks. Uh, what would you say about this rise? What are, what are you hearing about at street level? Well, I would say, first of all, it's not just in Dublin, it's nationwide. And we are seeing increases in public order offences because antisocial behaviour really isn't kind of recognised on the pulse system as that. So we're seeing a rise in it right throughout the country. Um, we're also seeing a lot of antisocial behaviour and violent behaviour like hammer attacks that are not being reported to the guards. So you're seeing what we call street justice going on in some hotspots around the, the country and, and that's very damaging to young people because young people are fearful within their own communities and they're not going to the guards. Um, if the guards knew about these things they could do more about but if they don't know what can they do? So I would urge anybody if they are a victim of a violent attack please go to the guards because the guards will invest and will support you and your family. So some people are just too intimidated to go to the guards. They're too fearful for, for the repercussions that might happen. They feel that these gangs have control over their area. And very often these gangs are very young people. Mm. Um, sometimes people within the gangs are victims of crime themselves because they're intimidated to be part of the gang. But overall, yeah, unfortunately, we are seeing a rise in antisocial behaviour. What you put it down to? <clears throat> well... I suppose all the studies will tell us you can link uh, increases in violence and antisocial behaviour to increased levels of poverty and um, austerity measures when um, youth clubs are cut back on their hours. All of these safety nets that are there to support young people away from criminal behaviour, when you see cuts in them, you will see a rise in violent crime. Now, actually, interesting, only a couple of weeks ago, a new initiative was launched on the north side of Dublin called Get the Message Out, um, hashtag there is another way. And that's about supporting families and young people to move away from crime and support them away from organised um, crime gangs. Um, and what it does is it wraps supports around them that they need, whether it be mental health services, whether it be MABs in terms of budgeting, um, counselling, all of these different things. So it's about taking the same approach that they took in Scotland, where they wrapped services around people, because sometimes people need a lot of services because there may be intergenerational trauma and the coping skills may not be there. Jim, do you think we need to look at a different approach when it comes to tackling these kind of public order offences, this street crime we're seeing, these random attacks? Because it is on the rise, so whatever is there isn't working. Yeah. 
Well, listen, I raised this issue in the Dáil last Thursday evening, and the reason I did was because a number of constituents had contacted me. One was complaining about their son who'd been subjected to an assault in Stephen's Green. Another was about staff members who had been attacked around Dame Street. And there were others on other parts of the constituency as well. And it is complicated, but what unfortunately appears to be happening is that there are a lot of young men uh, and older boys who seem to think it is acceptable to inflict gratuitous violence on people, people they don't even know. And listen, unless we try to tackle and target that, we're going to create an even greater problem for ourselves. And one of the problems we have is that I don't think they recognise the consequence of what they're doing. And I think we need to try to shame them out of this type of behaviour. And I think we need to make it socially unacceptable for boys and young men to engage in that and type one of thing, behaviour. One thing you're calling for, Jim, is name and shame those well, convicted I think it's of something public, we need public to look order at. Like, we're not gonna, Similar we're not, to a tax defaulters list that you would have yeah, a list but of We're never going to be able to have enough Gardaí on the street to monitor all of this, although we do need more Gardaí out there, more visible. You know, locking people up, we're never going to solve the problem doing that either. But I think what we need to do is to try to inculcate a sense of shame and recognition that this is socially unacceptable amongst people. And one way of doing that, like if you look at Ireland, the only time we publicise people who've been guilty or wrongdoing, that the state publicises it, is when there's tax defaulters. And that does have a deterrent effect upon other people because they say, I don't want to be published. But instead in Ireland, the only way we get information about criminal offences that have been committed by people is if the media happen to be in a court. We've no official mechanism of individuals being published. Now obviously you couldn't do this for children, but I think we may need to look at some form of a pilot project to see whether or not the publication of names of individuals who've been guilty of serious assault is something that we should do on a state I mean, basis. Is that not out there anyway? You're saying when, when people the, can't go and cover all the court no cases, source of that. There's a, no source of that. But there is, like if the media are in court, they can report about it. But otherwise, there's no official documentation that comes out from the state saying the following five people were convicted today of, you know... OK, and you think that might be picked Listen, up by I don't, the media I just, think, I just think it may create a sense of embarrassment amongst younger people and a recognition that this is not socially acceptable. OK, Louise, what do you think it's of that idea? It's complicated, though. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure, that's, that's, that's being honest. I, I'm, I can see that there would be downfalls to that and I'm not certain that that would necessarily be a panacea and I don't think Jim is suggesting that it would be. But I, I was taken by uh, what Trina said there, the, the relationship between poverty, deprivation and, and this type of crime. So, I mean, we do need to look at how our young people are living, the communities that they're being raised in and the resources that are there to support them. And that's not to excuse any of this, because I find it as abhorrent yeah. and objectionable as say, every person. There will be, and we've discussed all of this around the backgrounds, the lack of resourcing there, but there'll be a lot of people watching who may themselves have been victims of random attacks, themselves have felt very intimidated if they were getting, you know, public transport into a town or walking through their own local village. And they say, yeah, it's all very well talking about, you know, a lack of youth clubs or, or diversion projects for young people. But what, what about the victims and protecting the victims? And I suppose in particular, I'm talking about resourcing and police visibility. And there needs to be more. It's not just the visibility of Angarda Siakana. It's actually allowing them the time so that there's mm. sufficient resources that the Gardaí have the time to be able to be present and be active in communities because that's where they're going to build up the relationship with the community leaders, also with, uh, with these young people themselves. And I think that, that 
that is where the focus should be. I mean, I'm not immune to this. I, I had a very nasty experience in town not so long ago and, and it frightened me. It happened? absolutely frightened me. I was, I was followed back to my car by, by, uh, by a man. And I, I'm, there was another woman there that she was, she was involved in. It was, it was a funny, well, sort of funny. It was at the time of the, the COVID restrictions and both of us were kind of, I looked at her, she looked at me and I said, we put on, I had my car, she had no car. And I said, we put our masks on, I'll give you a lift. And she said, yeah. And then she was like, are we allowed? And then she, she recognised me. She's like, are you going to get in trouble? And I said, no, we're allowed to do this. I knew we were, that we were, you know, there was, there was a relaxation of the rules. And that was terrifying, absolutely. And I wasn't hurt, I was intimidated, but that was absolutely terrifying. That is not acceptable. And I think, you know, we need to accept there has to be, it's not about diversion projects or getting kids in a room to do jigsaws. It's not about that. It's about resourcing the Gardaí so that they can be present in communities, mm. so that they can have that relationship, so that they can see this is happening nearly okay. before it happens. It is one thing, and, and Louise has pointed to it there, that feeling, and a lot of people feel that, not just in urban centres, but just in the wake since the pandemic and the lockdown, um, the eeriness around town centres um, since, you know, since COVID and the restrictions that are there and this feeling that people actually don't want to go back out mm. because they're worried about what may happen. Um, do you think it's down to just having more um, Garthi on the beat, taken out of stations to do their job? Well, I think... Uh, being on the beat, actually, it's more about being involved with all of the community resources and being part of the community rather than just a, a policing force. They should be part of the neighbourhood. Everybody should know who they are. And I definitely don't think we can police our way out of this because so much more needs to be done. We need to look at the construction of our communities. That's important. In terms of shaming, I'm not sure whether that would work because for some young people, it can be a badge of honour um, to be involved in this kind of behaviour. You'll see, you see a lot of these young people this generation said they exist online and a lot of what they do happens online and and we're not part of yeah. that how does social media do you think amplify um these crimes well, and what's happening well we see in the uk for example snapchat has been used so much in court cases to prove that there was intent to kill or violently harm somebody. And we're seeing that happening in the UK. Um, in Ireland, we definitely see Snapchat and other uh, social media uh, platforms being used for people to pass messages or even to sell drugs. So we're kind of a bit behind the court. Like I'm an L one. I don't really know half of these social media apps. These young people know all about yeah, them. What can we do about well, young, young people are assaulting people and deliberately videoing it mm. or getting involved in fights and deliberately videoing it and putting it around on social media. Like social media companies make billions of pounds and billions of euro. They need to face up to the responsibilities they have to society. And as of yet, they haven't. But listen, in terms okay, so of... so you think there's a responsibility there's a, there on, of on Big Of course there is. And, and, and as Louise and Trina said, there's no simple solution to this. But at the core of this, and you know, I regret to say this as the only man on the panel here, but we do have a problem with young men and older boys who seem to think inflicting gratuitous violence on people they don't know or that they do know is acceptable. And also, sometimes they share similar violent attitudes okay. towards women as well. We Look, just need to really focus. So what do we do? What we do need we, to, I mean, uh, my, my idea is that we need to publicise individuals young adults who are found guilty of serious assault. But like, you know, would that's that work? Thing. I mean, that's what like, Trina listen, is saying. Like, it might it, work for white collar crime. It could work for the tax defaulters. Yeah. You know, someone's not talking to yeah. them up at the golf club. I know. But it's very different for but young sorry, people. But sorry, you're assuming as well, and I'm sorry, and I know Trina and Louise aren't saying this, but like the people who are perpetrating this violence against others and women, they're not all from deprived backgrounds. Yes. You know, they're yes. not all and from the, deprived I'm well backgrounds. Aware of that. And I'm not, and it's wrong to assume that people from deprived backgrounds Absolutely. would not be but embarrassed by having their names I suppose we're talking about 
about gangs of young people. Yeah, but they listen. They exist all over the place. Yes. All over the place. You know, and we just it need to get. We need to communicate. We need to uh, educate young men about the fact that they can't go around assaulting people. That's the main thing we need to do. Do you think there's enough Gardaí on the beat? No, I want to see more Gardaí out there. But no matter how many Gardaí we have out in the beat, if young men are developing and growing up believing that it's acceptable to inflict violence upon other people, we're never going to solve this problem. They need to realise that this is socially unacceptable the same way as drink driving is now recognised as socially unacceptable. And we should try that, try that route. Are there, are there pathways towards towards that and, and getting the, 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 a, a change in, in culture on our streets? Absolutely there is and it's how we frame the question. So rather than asking young men what's wrong with you, we need to ask what's happened to you and then we need to resolve the trauma that a lot of these young men are coming from. And that's, that's the key to this. We have young men who are traumatised by violent instances in their own childhoods and that then can cause them to escalate. When, when somebody is acting in a violent way, they're communicating something to us and we have to listen to this. Okay, we'll leave it there. My thanks to Trina, Louise and Jim. And after the break, Radio Nova presenter Luca Fuelon on his mental health journey. Stay with us. Welcome back. Now, it's Mental Health Awareness Week, and as part of our Just Ask Awareness campaign, I'm joined by Radio Nova presenter Luke Ophuelon. And Luke, um, you're very welcome along to the show. Thank you. Um, and we're talking about mental health, health awareness and the idea that people, you know, can speak out and should speak out if they have mental health issues and, and need to talk to someone. Um, in your case, mm. was that an easy decision to make, to speak out and talk about what you were going through? I think I've been getting better at it, actually, over the pandemic, um, because it's a lot of people struggling. And so you've kind of noticed every now and again, an Instagram story, they might just let it slip and you always check in, you know, and say, how are you? Are you all right, really? And I found myself doing the exact same thing. Every now and again, I'd let slip, you know, that maybe not everything was going as it seemed. Okay. And so I was getting lots of messages from people like in the same boat and then real like helpful and things like that. And so um, I've, I've actually found it easier through people getting in contact and talking about it and doing the odd story or tweet about it. So was that a big planned decision you made um, when you were in that space that, um, you know, things weren't going well for you, that you said, actually, you know, it's an opportunity to do it on Instagram? Because a lot of people may feel, oh, my God, that's a big step to do mm. that. You're really putting yourself out there. There's a vulnerability there, and yet you're sharing it with thousands of people. Mm. Well, not at the moment, considering Instagram's down. Probably the well, worst time. Yeah. <laughs> you can't even go and have a look. But yeah, I was. I definitely, I drew up a post. So a post is a bit more permanent, you know, because it's there. It doesn't go away after 24 hours. And um, uh, people were like, are you sure you're all right? I was like, yeah. What did you say in that post? Just, you know, that it wasn't, that I'm not okay. You know, the, the, I mean, if you scroll through, you'll see, like, you know, like my dog just passed away, you know, so that was like a big one. You can see my dog is, is, is gone and you can see I lost my, my gig and the, you know, relationship didn't work out the way I was going. So it, it was every now and again, you see a little kind of, you know, mm. crack. And then there's all this stuff like, hey, you know, I'm having a great time. And it's, it's hard to balance that. So I thought, let's just be honest and go, you know, as much as 90% of my feed is like, look, isn't this lovely? You know, 10% is not, yeah. you know, there's a bit struggling. And, and you've mentioned it there, it was a culmination of things that happened to you and it happened during the lockdown as well. Yeah. yeah. Which also always, and I think so many people have found it, it, it intensified life for them. Mm. Um, but it, it was a series of events. You would have described yourself as a strong person. Well, I, I, yeah, I suppose, yeah. Well, I did four years of breakfast radio, so if that doesn't make you strong, I don't know what does. But um, that went, and then the pandemic hit a week, maybe two weeks later. 
So that was that was that was a lot. Now, obviously, the this this pandemic has had a, a way worse effect on other people than it has on me. You know, I just lost a job and a relationship didn't go the way I thought it was, and I had to move in the space of you know a couple of months or so. So I think it was the the culmination, like you said, maybe three or four bad things. I could handle maybe one or two, but God, they they hit quite soon. So it did, uh, and then like leaving where I was to go somewhere else that was cheaper for rent, you know, because you're by yourself now during a pandemic in a lockdown and you can't see your daughter and stuff like that. So yeah, it did. It definitely mounted up and I, I wasn't very good at um, coping with it anyway. I don't think for the first six months. It's weird. My, my daughter actually taught me more about mental health than my entire school education. You know, she was like, it's okay to not be okay if you want to tell me. I'm like, I don't want to tell you. Like, you're, and is she <laughs> learning? It's just interesting, isn't it? Because yeah, you're right. Like, mm. you know, when we were younger, this was something that wasn't really discussed. It was like, kind of pull yourself together and you'll be all right and you're yeah. grand. Like, when's and, the first and time? And it's, you know, the, the, the Irish mentality and the yeah. culture that's been there. So, I mean, you're saying your young daughter did it. Do you think there is that change and that people are becoming really aware at a young age that Definitely, yeah. it's good to talk about your feelings? Yeah, like she, <laughs> she, she taught me way more. I mean, when's the first time you heard the words mental health? Because for me, it was college. So, I mean, we didn't have it in school. Now, I said it to her on the way here and she was like, what? It's almost funny to her that like, I didn't talk about my feelings in secondary school. You know, I didn't get a proper sexual education, for instance. They, they wouldn't let me do the class. They were like, you'd only be messing. So I ended up like not learning about anything other than from the lads, you know, mm. who knew less than me. So it was, you know, it was a bad start and then compounded, you know, my inability maybe to express it because if you're on air and your job is being that guy or that girl, you know, you can't just suddenly go in air and go, you know, I'm actually having a really bad day. <laughs> Guys, you have to be, you have to be clear, don't you? So it's difficult. Yeah, and it's not just, I suppose, for people working in the media, but any job or anything that you're in or with your family or mm. with your friends and how people perceive you to be. That's, that's the big issue yeah. as well, isn't it? That breaking through and saying, did you find it easier then to do it? You did it on Instagram, but essentially you were reaching out to strangers there. Mm. Well, so, was those, that easier? Those strangers are very helpful. I mean, they, they really do send you. So it's just for people who don't know, it was literally just a Q&A. It was like, you know, um, ask me some questions. And they did, and I responded, honestly. Um, and a lot of the questions were, are you okay? So I was like, oh, hang on a second. I, am I? Yeah, I, I think I am. So if everybody's concerned, so I just kind of started responding and they were like, yeah, we're just checking in on you. And so they would say, you know, give me their stories privately and then we, we would have it back and forth. And it was really nice, nice to get the support and then to support at the same time, which I think is really important. Yeah. And what did you do after that in terms of... You well, know, it was last night. To... <laughs> so I came on TV and talked about it, um, which is a classic media thing to do, really, isn't it? I think it was important, though. I mean, uh, I think it was important to, to have the chats it sounds really cliche, but it does get easier. Yeah. Easier. I mean, counselling is a huge thing and there shouldn't be any stigma about doing it. Um, counselling is, is an independent person that has no invested interest in you and that's really hard to find in your family or friends. So just pay the little small, you know, if you're on social welfare, it's even cheaper. Pay a little fee and talk to someone. It'll help so much more than you bottling it up or then drip feeding maybe mm. your other half and they don't fully get it because they have an invested interest, whatever it is. So the counselling is like, should be way up there in what we're being told as kids. Yeah, and I think that's really important, the idea that you can talk to someone and mm. then find ways of, of coping mechanisms or, or, mm. or other such things. But it's interesting that you mentioned there about moving away and being forced to do it. It can be financial situation or otherwise and how the change up and, and the feeling of isolation. It's something a lot of people could maybe relate to, yeah. um, especially during the lockdown. Well, uh, lots of stories of people that were stuck with their partner. They, 
didn't want to be with anymore and they couldn't go anywhere. <laughs> so for various reasons. So that was, that's tough. I mean, I, I, lots of stories of people that went in with mortgages and that all fell through and they had to buy the other half out. out. You know, there is definitely, I feel this kind of wave behind us that we haven't realised yet of um, potential problems with that lockdown. Mm. Uh, some which are really obvious, like I was alone or others were like, you know, I was with somebody that I didn't want to be with or I knew the relationship was over but we were in a lockdown. So I'm sure there's lots that is going to, like that counselling will really be needed for, you know, to, mm. to at least help. And Luke, do you feel you're turning a corner now? Yeah, no, I do. I definitely, the corner has been turned um, a couple of months back. And it's weird because you can see, like the first time, <laughs> stupid, but like, I, I, I'm not able to cry, weirdly enough. I've cried twice at movies, a little tear. But I had my big first cry in 32 years when my dog got hit by a car and I had to bury him. And that was the first time I cried, and I don't think that's healthy. I think I should have cried a few times before the age of 32. So there's something, something there. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, that's something we should look into. Okay. All right, Luke. Thanks Cheers. for that. Thanks for joining us tonight. And just to let you know, you can contact Helplines on virginmediatelevision.ie forward slash helplines. And that is it from us. Our programme is available as a podcast. From all the late team here, good night. Take care. is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.